Myanmar's economy is in trouble. That's according to every metric there is. On that topic, we hear from economist Sean Turnell, former advisor to Da Aung San Suu Kyi and former political prisoner in Myanmar. I get depressed over so many things in Myanmar, the, obviously the loss of life and the violence and all the rest of it above all. But, but if you look at the economy, compared to the hopes that people reasonably had for it, um, it just makes you want to cry. And the type of abuse found in Myanmar's garment industry has changed since the coup. We speak to an author of a recent report on the issue. Pakistan to Bangladesh, to India to Myanmar to lesser even in the UK, you see those kind of labor rights abuse. What is different about Myanmar is that alongside these patterns of abuse, you see the impact of the coup itself. So you see politics entering the sphere of the workplace. Plus an audio postcard from Chinland Defense Forces in Hakka Township. Sometime feel good, sometimes sad, sometimes tired. When I get my brother hit or injured, that's the worst feeling. But first, we have a rundown of this week's news from the Irrawaddy. You're listening to the Irrawaddy Newscast, a transmission of conflict and culture from inside and outside Myanmar. Stay tuned. Washington expanded sanctions on Myanmar this week to include two Burmese business people and three companies that supply jet fuel to the military. The U.S. Department of Treasury warned anyone providing jet fuel to Myanmar will be subject to sanctions. The regime has increasingly relied on airstrikes, which regularly kill civilians in fighting anti-junta forces. Activist group Justice for Myanmar welcomed the sanctions and encouraged the European Union, the United Kingdom, Canada, and Australia to follow suit. Several thousand Rohingya gathered at camps in Bangladesh to mark six years since a brutal military crackdown forced them to flee Myanmar. Those gathered demanded dignified repatriation. In August of 2017, over 700,000 Rohingya fled to Bangladesh, joining hundreds of thousands who had left previously. They've remained in camps living in poverty without access to work. Authorities have closed a large private hospital in Mandalay for employing members of the civil disobedience movement. Those CDMers were arrested last year. The government, which employs some 700 healthcare workers, will be shut for three months. In May, the junta's health ministry revoked the licenses of three other hospitals in Mandalay. More than 40 striking healthcare workers were arrested last year. One striking nurse died in interrogation. Authorities arrested a Swiss director and 13 amateur actors, including a 12-year-old girl. They are accused of making a movie blasphemous against Buddhism. You are listening to some of that film now, called Don't Expect Anything. It's available on Isi Dhamma's YouTube page. The film criticizes monks who do not follow the Buddhist precepts. Monks in Myanmar opposed military rule, criticized the arrests. It's no secret that Myanmar's economy is in trouble. During a recent press conference, a junta spokesperson blamed disloyal banks for the country's currency crisis. Trust in the banking sector has plummeted. 
A new 20,000 shot banknote has led to more worry of inflation. The junta-controlled central bank of Myanmar has limited withdrawals and the holding of foreign currency and has plans to form a task force to get the soaring foreign exchange rate and commodity prices under control. Although as of March, the central bank of Myanmar has more than $6.8 billion in foreign reserves in 14 foreign banks, more than half of that in Singapore. And China has pumped nearly $22 billion worth of infrastructure projects into the country, according to the regime. I spoke with Australian economist Sean Turnell. He's a former policy advisor to Da Aung San Suu Kyi. After the coup, he was arrested by the junta and spent nearly two years in prison. He first described to me the state of Myanmar's economy. I mean, it's just awful, Justin. I mean, there's no other... I mean, it's a catastrophe, I think is the word that I generally like to employ. Um, and I don't think that's even hyperbole, right? Um, no matter what you look at... Uh, it's negative, essentially. Um, I mean, if you begin with growth, um, economic growth in Myanmar took a bit of a knock with COVID. If you'd said, well, okay, where could you reasonably apply the trend line? So in other words, you get the knock from COVID, but then good policies sort of get you back on track, which is exactly what's happened, you know, all around the world and all around the region. So it's not an unreasonable expectation. Um, we'd have been back to the, those sort of growth levels, six, seven, eight percent, hopefully, because there actually had been a very aggressive reform program to to come into place with that second term of the government. You know, many of the things that that weren't done in the first term were were geared up and ready to go in the second term. So a- anyway, so just to say that growth rates of six, seven percent, we'd have been disappointed if we weren't hitting those. Irrespective of that, you know, even on the on the on the worst assumption of where you thought we'd be at, the economy now is about thirty percent below uh, below that. Any modest trend, the economy is about thirty percent down. Um, it's about twenty odd percent down anyway, you know. But but you know, by trend, it, it, it's nearly a third, uh, which is just a you know catastrophic for a country like Myanmar that that is poor to begin with, one of the poorest countries in the world, and people are now one-third poorer than where they should have been. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's no fat in the system. People uh, are desperately poor now, and they, they can't take a knot a third of their income. Right, so growth is down. What about other metrics? You know, no matter what the metric is, uh, the budget deficit is now dramatically blown out. Taxation revenue has shrunk dramatically along with it. That uh, The bond sales uh, are not really proceeding as as they as they could be um the banks are not really in, in a position to take up the bonds on offer so all of that means that the government is just printing money hand over fist uh as a consequence of that we've got monetary instability whether it be measured in terms of uh high inflation rates particularly relative to peers in southeast asia uh and a collapsing exchange rate so the, you know the exchange rate it's less than half of what it was um, before the coup. Uh, the trade situation's dire. There's a bit of holding up in, in terms of gas revenues because uh, hydrocarbon prices were quite high. But other than that, even other energy prices uh, uh, and income is down. Agriculture's down. Debt levels have more than doubled. Gosh, uh, unemployment to the extent that it's measured properly, of course, which, you know, a lot of the measures are, are, are not 
not really there anyway, but we do know that there's been a wholesale shift from the formal economy into the informal economy, and you don't get a growing, transforming economy out of one that is based in informality. Informality is really just a coping mechanism, and that's where most people are. Um, and then on top of that, just the opportunities lost. You know, um, back in 2020, uh, young, educated me and my people had real prospects uh, and had choices about where to get employment and so on. And now people are scattered to the wind outside the country, within the country, you know, people with uh, expensive degrees that, that they thought would yield them good income in a growing economy and now on the front lines or in prison. Um, yeah, it's just a catastrophe, right? Can we blame this on mismanagement by the junta or sanctions or just that the country is in a state of war right now? I mean, I, I'm probably a little bit biased in this, mate, obviously, but to me it comes from – in fact, interesting word, economic mismanagement. I wonder if that is the expression. It's an expression I've used, I hasten to add. Um, the more I think about it, is it really economic mismanagement? Because in some ways, mate, in terms of policy, and that's where a lot of the damage is being done, there is the damage, of course, being done by violence and so on as well, of course, um, perpetrated by the regime and, and instigated by them just wondering about that term economic mismanagement because in some ways mate what they're doing is gearing the economy to a war economy and neglecting or abusing everything else so to some extent mate it's management for a purpose right it's just that that purpose is greatly destructive um but in some ways yeah you know if you, if you think about that what they've essentially done is created a war economy um then yeah the the management that has yielded terrible economic outcomes is is in one sense quite deliberate um, in terms of, you know, transferring resources uh, into the military state. But but anyway, certainly it's economic mismanagement from an economist's perspective and, and what, what you would think would be the objective of, of any sort of sovereign government. Um, but, yeah, look, I, I think we'd have to locate it there. Again, I, I think it's mainly because, mate, if we just go to the uh, counterexamples around the region, you know, you don't need to go to... Uh, the developed world or, or rich or even fast-growing economies. I mean, you just go to the region and you see the bounce back. And Myanmar is such an extraordinary outlier in terms of economies that just haven't bounced back. You're coming out with a book about your time in Myanmar and your arrest and imprisonment. Can you share a bit about that? Well, we'll probably go on a big publicity thing of it in, in a few weeks. But yeah, it's finished. Uh, all finished now and just with the technical things with the publisher, um, uh, which is Penguin. Um, and it, it, yeah, it just deals, it starts with my arrest, mate, uh, back on the 6th of February, 2021. Uh, I've got a couple of chapters that deal with what we were trying to do in Myanmar, just a broad outline of the reform process, things like that. But for the most part, mate, it's all about the prison experience, uh, arrest, um, insane, uh, up to Napidor, the trial, um, the incredible support that I got from my fellow political prisoners and then the Burmese people more broadly. Um, so it's uh, it, it doesn't hold back from detailing the sort of horrors uh, all around me and all that, but it's still a little bit of a love letter to the Burmese people because even though there were these terrible people who were keeping me in the prison, it was the case that you know 99% of the people I dealt with, even in the prisons and so on, uh, were incredibly compassionate and incredibly courageous in demonstrating that compassion. So, you know, it doesn't hold back from uh, talking about and detailing the horrible things, but 
it also talks about, you know, the, as I say, the very great courage and compassion of so many people in Myanmar that I ran into. That was economist Sean Turnell. Keep a lookout for his upcoming book. Swedish clothing brand H&M will be phasing out their business in Myanmar. The company sources from 41 garment factories, which employs nearly 42,000 workers in the country. That decision comes a day after the release of a report by the UK-based Business and Human Rights Resource Center. That report documents widespread abuse in Myanmar's garment industry since the coup in 2021. I spoke with Natalie Swan, that report's author. She first told me about the importance of the garment industry in Myanmar's economy. You really saw in the early 2010s with the opening up of the country to um, more democracy and its economy open up, the beginning of um, a pretty large garment industry in the country. And indeed, it's employing a huge number of women over the last 10 years and is a key export industry for the country. Um, what's really interesting about the growth of the garment sector over the last 10 years is that it did go hand in hand with some development of unionization in the country as well. However, it didn't necessarily mean decent wages and good terms and conditions for workers. And we've definitely seen a slide away from those wins in terms of freedom of association and also terms and conditions that workers are gained with that fledgling industry after the 2021 coup. So things were getting better. Can you give me a rundown of what your report documents has been happening since the coup? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we've been tracking allegations, publicly available allegations of human rights and labor rights abuse of workers in garment sectors across um, the Myanmar garment industry for the last two years. So since the February 2021 coup. And what we've seen is a rising number of allegations of abuse. And these look different, right? So um, a lot of the allegations of abuse, you could say were kind of the bread and butter um, human rights allegations that you see not just across the Asia region, but across the world, wherever garments are produced. So that could look like um, wage reduction. It could look like gender-based violence and harassment. It could look like health and safety infringements, which are really um, detrimental to those works, of course. And just to give you a few stats of the 212 cases that are included in this report, 55% are related to wage reduction and wage theft, 42% to unfair dismissal, and another 42% are related to inhumane work rates and forced overtime. So you see those from kind of Pakistan to Bangladesh to India to Myanmar to lesser even in the UK, you see those kind of labour rights abuse. What is different about Myanmar is that alongside these patterns of abuse, you see the impact of the coup itself. So you see politics entering the sphere of the workplace. And that happens in a couple of ways. One, a huge crackdown on freedom of association. Um, we see crackdowns on freedom of association all around the world, but really very hot on the heels of the coup in Feb 2021. You see 
those labor laws that have been very hard fought for, that had only been instituted 10 years before, no longer working for workers, essentially ignored by the government. It's virtually impossible to register a union in the country. Trade union leaders were hunted, put in prison, in some cases killed. So it becomes incredibly difficult to enact that enabling right to freedom of association that then allows you to fight for all those other things like decent wages and safe workplaces. The third thing that I think is quite interesting is we're not just looking at freedom of association infringements as a result of the coup, but you're looking at military employer collusion. And that's what the allegations that we've been tracking have been showing. So you see this kind of breakdown between the streets and the workplace, whereby the military is able to come into factories and arrest workers who, for example, are planning to protest, have posted on their social media that they support the pro-democracy movement. And that's obviously incredibly concerning. Um, you also see the managers of factories utilizing this relationship and where workers are maybe trying to unionize um, or are calling for more decent terms and conditions, they're calling the military in to surveil and intimidate workers. What's been these companies' responses when you bring the allegations of abuse to them? There's some companies that will default say, um, you know, this is completely untrue. We've gone to the factory. Um, we, we had a couple of cases of... Um, of companies saying, well, we just went to the factory owner and they said there was no problem. Or we called in the Myanmar labor inspector and they said there's no problem. You know, what a surprise. Um, so you do get those cases, of course, but we do also get companies, responsible companies, who will undertake some level of investigation, have some level of oversight of what's going on and they're supplying factories in the country and say, yes, there is an issue and this is what we're doing to try and mitigate that issue. And what you see coming through the report that we've just released is that there is a huge difference in how brands are engaging in Myanmar, particularly in the realm of oversight. So you have some, some buyers from the country who have no staff on the ground, who are relying on third party audits, which are notoriously bad, particularly when you're looking at unearthing those particularly insidious um, types of abuse, like gender based violence and harassment, threats and intimidation. Whereas you have some companies that do have on the ground internal teams who are undertaking their own inspections and investigations. And I'm not saying that com these companies then provide um, a perfect um, response to the resource center but you do see that they're acknowledging that there is harm and that they're putting the steps in place to remedy where possible what should brands be doing with this information that you're providing yeah we we really throw down the gauntlet and a challenge to brands in the report um in in a couple of areas the majority of brands that are staying in the country or report that at the moment they are staying in the country say that they're doing so to ensure those worker livelihoods, what we discussed earlier, um, that workers need a job to feed themselves and their families. And yet the minimum wage hasn't increased in the country since 2018. You don't see decent levels of wage being paid in Myanmar. So I suppose what we want to say is if you're going to continue to source, particularly if you're saying that the reason is due to worker livelihoods, can you ensure that decent and living wages are being paid to workers. So number one, if you're staying, pay properly. Number two is heightened due diligence. Um, due diligence is increasingly a requirement 
on the horizon a mandatory requirement for many of these companies, particularly if you operate in the European Union. And brands need to be doing a lot more. You can't just say in your human rights policy that you, you have a commitment to the United Guiding Principles on Business Rights, that Business and Human Rights. You can't just say that you believe in human rights. You have to show it and you have to show that you have oversight along your supply chain, especially in those areas. Lastly, if brands decide to leave, we heard that H&M are going to phase out orders. Um, multiple other com companies have already done that that leave has to be responsible. So it can't be a cut and run leave. It has to be done with proper oversight. It has to be done with engagement with stakeholders. And it has to take a little bit of time to make sure that workers are adequately compensated and that grievances are remedied. That was Natalie Swan with the Business and Human Rights Resource Center. And now for a report on the war against the junta, the latest news from the ongoing conflict. Resistance fighters have killed at least 38 regime forces and allied militia members in the last week or so of clashes. Anti-junta groups say they are on the offensive in the Maguey region and that the area is largely under their control. You are listening to footage of a recent attack by the Yaw Defense Force during a raid that killed three regime soldiers. Also in the Maguey region, attacks killed two junta fighters guarding a China-backed oil and gas pipeline. Fighting continues between the military and the Tong National Liberation Army in northern Shan State. Heavy regime shelling in the Bago region injured six and forced thousands to flee. Resistance groups have also stepped up attacks near the capital of Naypyidaw, sometimes striking within an hour's drive of that political center. In Kiao State, the Kryn human rights group say three children were injured by a hunted drone attack. Four bodies were found dumped in fields in the Sagang region's Shwebo township. One of those bodies was beheaded. Two of the victims were arrested by junta forces last week, and nearly 500 regime soldiers have deserted over the past four months. That's according to the National Unity Government. The Irrawaddy collected the following reports from People's Defense Force and Ethnic Armed Organization sources. You can find more at the Irrawaddy's website in the section called War Against the Junta. The regime has killed at least 4,007 civilians since the coup, that's according to the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners. This month, we traveled around Chin State with anti-junta Chinland Defense Forces. Check out previous episodes to hear stories on healthcare in Chinland, how IDPs are faring, and a report from the front line in Tantlong. Here we have an audio postcard from one CDF fighter in Hakka Township. He talks about what life is like in the CDF and Chin State. The junta controls the city of Hakka, but the surrounding mountains and valleys are mostly CDF territory. In that space, residents go to church, compete in traditional Chin wrestling, and sing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm David, and I'm right now I'm in fight for justice in Hasidia. Uh, before the coup, like from 2016 to 19, before COVID, I was a graphic designer, and because of COVID, COVID-19, I took a, I took rest a little bit, and then uh, as I'm planning to go for to study in Singapore, like the military coup happened, so I stay back, and then until today, I'm the fight. Yeah. If I go, then I'll have to stay for the rest of my life under the military rule, so I don't want to to do that. I think it's a big sacrifice because I have to leave all my dreams and my opportunity, you know. If in, we live in the jungle, we live in uh, a shelter with uh, no, no proper food, no proper roof, no proper, proper blanket to sleep. But if you ask me, you, did, did you uh, lose anything then? I'll say yes. I cannot see my family. Uh, I cannot be with my dad and mom. I cannot go to anywhere that I like as before. I cannot work the job that I love as a designer also. And then I really want to study, but I, c I couldn't study. So, uh, I, ha I have to sacrifice those, but those are small things, you know. Our brothers sacrificed their life, their, their legs, their hands, their eyes, everything. They have like many people gave already, so cannot go back. It's quite easy for us to move around the villages because when we reach there, uh, we go from village to village. I think they welcome us very warmly. Like sometimes, uh, I don't even miss my parents. You know, when I I go there because they are everybody is like my parents, and then they just welcome us like that. So uh, till today, they really support us. And then at the same time, they are scared also. This, they are uh, afraid of the, those the join the army. So, as a, till today, they really support us. I don't know about the future because uh, out here, everybody work. They work for one uh, a day and then they'll eat in the evening and they'll, they'll finish. So, how long will t how long could they support us? We don't know. But so far, the the people support us with yeah. There is also uh, very, very few, very less jobs to do in the city right now because they are <coughs> they are afraid to build a house or construction because anytime the airstrike can happen, any anytime the <coughs> RPG can hit, any, uh, the mortar sh shelling can happen. So. Uh, most of the people doesn't want to do any construction work, but this time, most of the people, so no job for common people like us. Yeah, the day today is not diff the same, but sometimes they used to arrest 20 people a day, and then they, they'll collect money from them, like 20 lakhs, 40 lakhs, and then they'll just release them again. So It's for their fundraising, let's say they raised money for, from the poor people like, like me. Taylor, 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 
Sometimes feel good, sometimes sad, sometimes tired. When I get my brother hit or injured, that's the worst feeling. And then if there's there's nothing such, then it's just normal. Fight and then come back. I'm 29 now. As of now, we have uh, we don't really have uh, um, the power to fight because your we don't have air defense system. We uh, we need a lot of drones and we need a lot of guns and ammunition. And then I think by the end of this year, we we may know how far we go. And then maybe the end of 2024, we can control our states by ourselves. That's what I'm thinking. You've been listening to the Irrawaddy Newscast. You can find links to the stories mentioned here in the show notes, as well as a way to support the Irrawaddy's reporting. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.